Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. That's right, that's me, Melissa Canchola here for Truth Be Told Radio. And what we got to start is uh, back-to-back messages from R.C. Sproul. And here we go. My assignment tonight is to speak about the problem of the relationship between the sovereignty of God and human freedom. And after hearing Dr. MacArthur's message earlier, I feel like the message that I'm to bring this evening is a concluding unscientific postscript to what we've already heard from his lips. He really captured the essence of the sovereignty of God, a concept that needs to be proclaimed again and again and again in the church because we tend to think that God uh, is impotent and that the arm of the Lord has waxed short. The way in which Dr. MacArthur always grounds his views in sacred scripture is a wonderful thing, and I thought that today's uh, treatment of the subject was a tour de force, and so really I'm just giving an epilogue uh, to what you've already heard. And before I read the scripture, I'd like to ask you to join with me in prayer. Let us pray. Father and our God, we rejoice that it is you who is sovereign and not we ourselves. That this is your world and all that is in it. And all that is in us has been moved by thy spirit to praise your holy name. And rather than being intimidated by your sovereignty, we rejoice in it and find our comfort therein. So speak to us tonight as we wrestle with this question of how your sovereignty relates to our freedom. So we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to uh, begin this this evening by reading a brief passage from the book of Genesis. We've already considered with Dr. Duncan uh, earlier today, Genesis 1, which is the first chapter of the book of Genesis Who knows what the last chapter of the book of Genesis is? Right, chapter 50. There was a resounding answer to that question. I'm glad there are a few Baptists here in this group that read their Bibles. Okay. I'd like to to direct your attention really almost to the very end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50 beginning at verse 15, where we read these words. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, 
They said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. And so they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Before I finish this text, you're aware of what has led up to this moment where in one of the most cold-blooded acts of treachery and betrayal, Joseph, who was the apple of his father's eye, had been sold into slavery by his jealous and envious brothers, and they took his coat of many colors and dipped it in the blood of an animal and came back to their home and to their father, Jacob, with the story they made up that, alas, Joseph had fallen prey to a ravenous beast, had been torn limb for limb and was no more. When in fact, they had exploited the advantage they had to get rid of him by selling him to Midianite caravanners and traders who were on their way to Egypt. You know the story. They came there, sold him in the slave mart to Potiphar. He became Potiphar's slave, and then the treacherous uh, lies of Potiphar's wife had Joseph thrown into prison where he languished year after year after year, but never abandoned his faith in the Lord God. And then through the mysterious manner of his ability to interpret dreams, Joseph was freed in order to interpret the troubling dreams of the Pharaoh. And because of that, uh, Pharaoh appointed Joseph to be working with the, uh, the uh, erection of the store cities for the grain to protect them against famine. And Joseph showed such an, an, a, a penchant for administration that Pharaoh elevated him to the level of prime minister. You know the story then how when the famine hit Canaan, Jacob sent his sons down into Egypt to get uh, relief, to try to get goods from the storehouses to feed their family. They came into the courts of Pharaoh and were met there by Joseph. Joseph recognized them. They didn't recognize him. And all of the drama that unfolded in that encounter until finally it became clear that the prime minister of Egypt was the brother that they had betrayed. And as all of this works out, we finally come to the end of the story where Jacob, after having learned that his son was still alive, has died. And the brothers now know that they don't have the protection of their father, Jacob. 
to shield them from the vengeful wrath of their brother. They are now terrified. And they don't know how to deal with it. And so we're told here that they said, maybe Joseph will hate us. And they recognized instantly that Joseph had every right under the sun to hate them. Because what he had, what they had done to him was a despicable and hateful thing. And so they assumed that Joseph would behave toward them in seeking revenge with the same kind of fury that they had exercised out of their jealousy and envy against him those many years before. So now they are begging for forgiveness. But they acknowledge that what they had done was evil. Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept in the midst of this acknowledgement of their sin, in the midst of their repentance where we still don't know was motivated by a genuine contrition or more out of a fear of punishment. But they acknowledged that what they had done was wicked. And it brought their brother to tears. Now listen to what follows. So his brothers went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. Doesn't that uh, foreshadow the experience of the prodigal son in the New Testament where after he came to himself by living a life of licentiousness and determined to come home to his father's house when he comes in repentance. He says to his father, I am not worthy to be your son. Please forgive me and make me as one of your slaves. I don't have to be a son. I just want to be in your house. And I'm happy to be there as your slave. And it's the same idea here that the brothers are saying to Joseph, look, we've wronged you. We don't expect you to receive us as your brothers. And they're on their face and they say, Accept us as your slaves. How does Joseph respond? Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You're on your faces before me as if I were the living God. I'm just your brother. I'm not ruling in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me. You acknowledge it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. 
what you did to me those years ago when you betrayed me and sold me into slavery was unspeakably wicked. It wasn't an accident. You knew exactly what you were doing. You meant it and intended it for evil. And it's as if Joseph was saying to his brothers, you know, I thought about this a little bit over the last several decades. I've had a lot of time in the prison to think about this, and I've had to deal with the possible root of bitterness that would grow up in my soul because of what you guys did to me. But I've come to understand that you were not the only players in this episode. I've come to understand that the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord God of Israel, was intimately involved in your wickedness. You couldn't have hurt me for a second. You couldn't have damaged my heart or destroyed my relationship with my father. You couldn't have had me delivered into the hands of my enemies and cast into prison for one second apart from the sovereign providence of God. Because God's sovereignty was involved in your diabolical actions against me. And I believe in a God who works all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And I believe that the Lord God of the universe has the sovereign power even to work your treachery against me for good. Now, before you relax and say, well, see, we were just carrying out the sovereign will of God. Certainly, you're not going to be upset with us uh, for that. Uh, we can't even say that the devil made us do it, but it's this sovereign God up there that made us betray you. So just like uh, Adam before them would say, the woman that you gave me led me into this predicament, Joseph is not going to give them that option. He said, let's be clear. What you did was evil. And Joseph was not about to call good evil or evil good. What you did was evil and you meant it for evil. But what you meant or evil, what you designed out of the wicked machinations of your hearts for evil, God meant for good. So that God's intent in all of this was altogether righteous. That God, in his sovereignty, has the capacity and the ability 
to work through the sinful decisions and the wicked choices of his creatures to bring about his sovereign will, which is altogether righteous. John has already shown how that works out in the New Testament, that the cross was not an accident. The cross was the most wicked evil ever perpetrated by human beings. Caiaphas meant it for evil. Pilate meant it for evil. The Pharisees meant it for evil. But over and above the human intentionality, the human decisions that grew out of the evil inclinations and impulses of fallen human beings, God was at work to bring about good. I didn't know, you know, I thought this place was a desert, and I didn't know that there were seals in the desert. Thank you. Did anyone wonder why we call the most uh, wicked event in the history of the world that took place in Golgotha that we remember that and call that day good Friday? Why don't we call it Bad Friday? We don't call it Bad Friday because what God wrought in that action was the greatest good in the history of the world and the atonement for his people. Now what we see here in this passage, well, let me read it, the rest of it. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, comma, in order. Now those two words, in order, in the text, express purpose. God meant it for good. God's purpose in all of this, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. So don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them, not because of their good intentions, but because of God's good intention. You know how God's sovereignty works? You had the old adage, for one of a nail, the shoe was lost. For one of the shoe, the horse was lost. For one of the horse, the rider was lost. For one of the rider, the battle was lost. And so the pivotal moment that decided the outcome of the battle was a single nail from the shoe of the horse insignificant detail became the pivotal reason for the loss of the battle. You ever think of what led to Good Friday 
whatever led to your salvation. Just go back a little bit in time. Jacob favors Joseph, so he makes this gorgeous coat of many colors for him. And he gives him that coat. And Joseph struts around like a peacock in the thing. And he tells his older brothers that I had this dream where you guys were bowing down in front of me. And they said, that's it. It's enough with the coat. You know, this kid has got to go. And so they go and they sell him into slavery and he goes. They just happened. It just so happened. And when they're trying to get rid of him, just at that second comes these caravanners on their way to Egypt. And there's this unplanned intersection between the intentions of the Midianite caravan merchants meeting up with the plans of Joseph's brother. And so when they join together, everybody's happy. It's a no-lose situation. The brothers get rid of Joseph. The Midianite traders get a prize that they can sell in in the slave market. So they now go down to Egypt. And just by chance, when they put this kid up for sale in the slave block, it just so happens that the one who gets the winning bid is this captain of the guard named Potiphar, who just happened to be married to this unscrupulous woman who tried to seduce this young slave, who was falsely accused, thrown into prison, whether happened to be his fellow prisoners, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. And while he's in there, he's interpreting dreams for them. It just so happens that one of them gets out and goes to talk to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has these nightmares. And But good luck for, for Joseph. The candlestick maker remembers this guy back in prison who can interpret dreams. You know the story, so he finally brings it back. Joseph becomes the prime minister, the famine comes, the brothers come, they finally invite Jacob to come back down to Egypt, and if it hadn't have been for that, the Jews never would have sojourned in Egypt. But now they come, and they live in the land of Goshen. They multiply, they just buy. It just so happens that there comes this Pharaoh who didn't know about Joseph, And instead of giving safe conduct to these Jewish immigrants, he decides to turn them into a slave labor force to take care of his public building projects. Well, as fate would have it. One of their women conceived and was has this baby and at the time the pharaoh creates this edict to destroy the children and so this mother not wanting her baby to be put to death makes this little ark out of reeds and pitch sets it adrift in the river consigns the fate of her child to the hidden providence of god and so the little thing starts to float down the river starts to cry I mean, if the child hadn't cried, nobody would ever notice the doggone thing. But it just so happened that Pharaoh's daughter's down there doing her wash, and she finds this baby, and she says, well, i got to take care of this baby. She takes it home, raises it as the child of Pharaoh's. 
sudden as a little baby gets all the training of the best of the Egyptian court. Within just one fateful day, without any intent, without any plans, nobody was lying in wait. He happens to see a guard mistreat one of the Jewish slaves. And in his anger, he rises up and strikes this guard and kills him accidentally. It wasn't uh, malice aforethought. It wasn't uh, first-degree murder. He wants to hide the body, but somebody saw it. Because somebody saw it, Moses is banished into exile, where he languishes as a shepherd in the Midianite desert until his old age. But when he least expected it, he's taking care of the sheep one day, and all of a sudden he looks over and he sees this bush that's burning, it's not being consumed. He says, what is this? And he turns aside, and the bush starts talking to him and tells him, it just so happens that that was the place where God reveals himself to Moses, and God gives Moses the mandate to go to the court of Pharaoh and to say to Pharaoh, I have heard the cry of my people. Let my people go. And what follows is the greatest redemptive event in the whole history of the Old Testament, the Exodus. God saves his people, enters into a covenant with them, makes them a nation, gives them his law, conquers the, the land, gives them a king, sends them his prophets. And a couple of thousand years later, out of all of this, a baby is born in Bethlehem. And we could go on with this story, but you realize all of this because of one lousy coat of many colors. Huh? No coat, no jealousy. No jealousy, no betrayal. No betrayal, no sale into slavery. No trip to Egypt, no Potiphar, no Potiphar, no Potiphar's wife, no Potiphar's wife, no prison sentence, no prison sentence, never meets the butcher baker, the candlestick maker, doesn't meet them. He never gets acquainted with Pharaoh. He's never elevated to the prime minister. The children of Israel never settle in the land of Goshen. There's never a slavery. There's never an exodus. There's never a nation. There's never the Ten Commandments. There's never the kingdom of God. You meant it for evil. God intended this for good, to save many people. Is that incredible? You know, when I hear people struggling over the relationship of between, oh, no. There goes my watch, all the way down behind the pulpit. That's my most valuable possession. That, that's better than the coat of many colors ever was. You see, you can't even reach it. i got to keep preaching until we find a lady who has a really skinny arm or somebody who, here she comes. 
Can you reach down in there? I bet you can't even get that. That's it. There she is. Thank you very much. I'm putting this in my pocket before that happens again. But if it hadn't happened that watch, I never would have met that lady. You know, but when we deal with this difficult questions that we have to struggle with as Christians, it always comes up in the list. How do we reconcile the sovereignty of God with human freedom? I have to say a couple of things about this that seem to be almost contradictory. In the first instance, I have to say, as a brand new Christian, as a Christian of only a couple of months, I thought about this question, and I was troubled by it. I thought, it seems to me that I'm facing a contradiction here between human freedom and divine sovereignty. I'm thinking, if God is really sovereign, then we can't really be free, or if we're really free... God can't really be sovereign. And so I was in a, in a college that was church-related, and it was a very, very weak relationship. But as one in which there was still a, a requirement to take uh, introduction to the Old Testament, which I was doing as a freshman, I raised the question to the professor about what about God's sovereignty and human freedom? And he kind of screwed up his forehead to give a look of profundity. And he talked in hushed terms. He says, oh, he says, it's a mystery. He said, it's like God's sovereignty and human freedom are like parallel lines that meet in eternity. And I heard them say that, and I thought, Wow, that's heavy stuff. This professor is really smart. Parallel lines that meet in eternity. I left the classroom and I went back to the dorm and I like to play ping pong there. And I was playing ping pong and I was in the middle of this ping pong game. I'm thinking parallel lines that meet in eternity. I'm thinking if those prayer lines meet in eternity, in fact, if they meet in Albuquerque, in Dallas, in Atlanta, or New York City, never mind eternity, they're not really parallel lines. Now, are they? Because if they're really parallel lines, they're not going to meet in Albuquerque or anywhere, let alone eternity. And I said, on the other side, If they do meet in eternity, then they're not really parallel lines. So that this seemingly profound answer to my question sort of fell by its own weight. And I thought, you know, that's really silly to talk like that. Then I got another one. He tells me it's like when you go get water out of a well, you have this bucket up at the top, and it's attached to a rope, and you let that bucket down to the bottom of the well. You can't see. It's too dark down there. And you drop it down in there, and you let the bucket collect some water, and then you pull it back up, and, 
and you have your water. And he says, do you realize that there are two ropes that go down there, but outside of your site, they wrap around the, uh, uh, what do you call that thing? The pulley, thanks, Chris, at the bottom. And so their connection and their unity is beyond the scope of your vision. And that's kind of how it is with the sovereignty of God and human freedom. But what we're talking about here, folks, is not getting water out of a well. And I realized that by the time I was just a Christian for about three months, what's the big deal with this question? This question is really not a tough question at all. It's a very simple question. And what amazes me is how so many people seem to stumble over it. There's there's really no problem. There's no contradiction. There's no mystery at all. You have God who's a being, and you have people who are beings. And when we talk about the difference between the two, we call the beings that we are human beings. And when we call, refer to God, we say the supreme being. Now, what's the relationship between human beings and supreme beings? Well, the main thing we have to understand there is which one is supreme? We don't call people supreme beings. We call them human beings. It's God who is the supreme being. Now, God is a volitional being. That is to say that God has a will. He has a divine faculty by which he makes decisions, by which he undergoes choices. We, as his creatures, are also volitional beings, and part of our humanity is that our creature has endowed us with the faculty of choosing, which we call the will. And what having a will means and the faculty of choosing means is that we have the ability to make choices. And that's what we're concerned about when we're talking about freedom and about free will, the ability to make choices. Now, back in the 19th century in Europe, there was a very important philosopher whose name was Edmund Husserl. Now, most people on the street have never heard of Edmund Husserl, who was one of the leading founders of a school of philosophy called personalism, And one of the things that the philosophy of personalism was trying to answer was the question, what makes human beings unique? What is it that defines our existence as human beings, as persons? What does it mean to be a person rather than a thing? And the answer that Edmund Husserl gave to that question was simply this, that human beings have the ability 
to act with intentionality. That is, we can conceive of a purpose that we want to accomplish, and we can make choices and decisions in order or for the purpose of or the intent of bringing that idea to pass. And so Hasserl insisted that absolutely central to our humanness is the fact that we have the ability to make choices. I said most of you probably have never heard of Edmund Hasserl, but I suggest that most of you have heard at least of one of his two famous disciples. His two most famous students were Jean-Paul Sartre and, uh, oh my, I took a pain pill about an hour ago and I said to my wife, I said, this is going to be an exercise in terror tonight because I'm going to be so loopy. I'm not, I'm not even going to be able to remember Martin Heidegger's name, but I just, it just came to me. So you have Sartre and Heidegger, two of the most significant atheistic philosophers of the 20th century. Both studied under Husserl. Both preoccupied with the whole concept of human volition. And Sartre came to the conclusion that it's human freedom that is the strongest argument there is against the existence of God. Basically, Sartre reasoned in this manner. He said, if man is truly free, God cannot exist. And, conversely, if God exists, man cannot be free. Now, those were the options. And he said, we know for sure that we are free. We know for sure that we are moral creatures, that we are volitional creatures, so that proves that there can't be a God. Well, there was one element in his reasoning process that I haven't uh, explained to you yet. In defining freedom, Sartre argued that freedom means autonomy. Let me say it again. Freedom means autonomy. And unless your freedom is elevated to the level of autonomy, your supposed freedom is but a mirage. Okay? What is autonomy? What is an automobile? You all know what an automobile is. It's the thing that guzzles your gasoline every day. The word automobile has a prefix and a root. Auto means self. Mobile has to do with movement. 
An automobile is a machine that moves itself, except when it runs out of gas. Then we have to push it, and it's no longer an automobile. But that word auto means self. The Greek word for law is the word nomos. You've heard it already today. The word antinomian means against the law. And so the word autonomy, autonomos, means literally self-law or self-rule. So the idea Sartre had was this, that to be truly free, we have to have absolute freedom. We have to have autonomy, meaning that we have no accountability ultimately to anyone outside of ourselves. So obviously, if I am autonomous, if I rule myself, there is no room in that scenario for a sovereign, omnipotent deity who reigns in heaven over all things. Now, if you want to find an insoluble contradiction, an antinomy that no amount of insight can resolve, it would be the conflict between divine sovereignty and human autonomy. Those two cannot mutually exist in the same universe. Just like we understand that there cannot coexist in the same universe an immovable object and an irresistible force. Now, we can conceive of a force that is irresistible, and we can conceive of an object that is immovable. What reason cannot conceive is the coexistence of two objects, one of which is immovable and the other of which is irresistible. Why not? An irresistible force meets an immovable object and the object moves. What does that tell you about the force? What does that tell you about the object? It's not immovable. If an irresistible force meets an immovable object and it doesn't move, what does that tell you about the irresistible force? It wasn't irresistible. You thought it was irresistible. And the old songwriter understood this. Some of you with snow in the roof, remember the song goes something like this. If an irresistible force, such as you, meets an immovable object like me, then what? Somewhere, somehow, da 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 Something's got to give, something's got to give, something's got to give. Remember that? That's the way they used to write songs uh, in this country. 
you can't have is a universe where you have a sovereign God and an autonomous creature. And only if you think of human freedom as rising to the level of autonomy do you have this problem. But nowhere does the Bible ever teach that human beings have been given autonomy by God. On the contrary, autonomy is the illegitimate, illicit reach of creatures made in submission to a sovereign God. You know what we read in creation? That when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, and I have to take the watch out again. I've got to finish this quick. What did he say? You live in this garden, and you're not allowed to do anything. I have all these trees with all these beautiful foods there in the garden I've made, but you can't avail yourself of any of it. Don't you touch any of those trees, because if you touch a single tree in that garden, you will die. Is that what God said? That's what the devil said that God said. But that's not what God said. Here's the first introduction of the concept of freedom. Of all the trees in the garden, you may freely eat. Except this one over here. You may not eat of that. If you do, you die. What God gave human beings in creation was the ability to make choices. But that ability was not unlimited. It was limited. Of all the trees God said over here, you may freely eat. But you can't just do anything you want to do. There are limits to your freedom. There are restrictions to your freedom. And the thing is this. God is free. And his creatures are free. But God is more free than his creatures. Now that's simple. You would think it would be simple. But here's the kind of stuff I hear all the time in the church. See if you've heard this one. God's sovereignty is limited by human freedom. Have you ever heard that? Beloved, that's, that's, not, that's not good theology. That's blasphemy. If you say that God's sovereignty is limited by your freedom, who's sovereign? You are. You are given now autonomy. You're given freedom that exceeds the freedom of God himself. Here's one even worse. God saves as many people as he possibly can. You know, he'd like to save everybody. He does the best he can. But if he would work in your heart to change your heart without your permission, it'd be violating your freedom. 
And so God can't save you unless you want to be saved. And the sinner in hell would give everything he had and do anything he could to get rid of that freedom that kept God from saving him. On the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus did not ask Christ to save him. When God intruded into my life through his sovereign good pleasure, change the disposition of your of my heart i wasn't seeking him i didn't ask him to come in he came and so i came to you he didn't destroy my freedom he elevated it because until he did that i was a slave to my own wicked inclinations now, in the doctrine of providence, we talk about the doctrine of concurrence. How there can be the choices of God at the same time there are choices of men. And how God works through the choices of human beings without annihilating our choices God did not rob Joseph's brothers of their freedom. Joseph's brothers did exactly Joseph's brothers wanted to do. God didn't coerce them. God didn't force them. But God exercised his sovereignty through their free decisions. That's an amazing thing. It is a good thing. And I rejoice that my freedom never places a limit on God. If I choose to do anything that I do, if I choose to raise my hand right now as an exercise of volition, my mind is has decided it would be a good thing for me to raise my hand, and that, that notion somehow is communicated to the body and their interaction between non-extension and extension takes place in this activity where I raise my hand. What if God didn't want me to raise my hand? What if God sovereignly decreed that I would not be able to raise my hand? God knew I was going to raise my hand, and he said, no, you're not going to raise your hand. Could he annihilate me before I raise my hand? Could he remove my ability? Absolutely. There was already a reference earlier to the Westminster Confession that says God ordains from all eternity freely in him whatsoever comes to pass, but not in such a way as to do violence to the will of the creature or to do away with secondary causes. My ability to raise my hand is a real power. I can exercise real causal power by deciding I want this effect of raising my hand. But always and everywhere, I live and move and have my being in God. And I can't even raise my hand without the primary power of God. So if you're going to deal with this problem of human freedom quickly, You've got to get rid of the pagan idea that has infiltrated the church, 
that free will means autonomy. Or the free will means that as a creature, you have the ability to decline, incline yourself either to the good or to the bad with equal power. No. God says that by nature in your sin, you're a slave. You still have a will. You still have the ability to make choices, but your choices are wicked. You are morally incapable in and of yourself until you are enabled by God the Holy Spirit ever to choose the holy things of God. If God said, here I am, here's Jesus, here's no Jesus, take your pick. The humanist, the secularist, the, that person says, you have the equal power to choose Jesus or not to choose Jesus. The Bible says, Jesus says, if that option is set before you in your sin, in your corruption, in your state of spiritual death, you will not choose Jesus because you cannot choose Jesus. And the reason you cannot choose Jesus is because you will not choose Jesus. See, the simple thing is you cannot choose what you don't want. What choice is, is choosing what you want the most in a given situation. The po most powerful inclination that you have at the moment. So choices don't happen in a vacuum. They're not magic. Every choice that you've ever made has a motivation behind it. It's your motivation, not somebody else's. You've never once in your whole life done something that you didn't want to do. I have $100 in my wallet that I will give not to the first person, but however many of you can do it, who can tell me tomorrow after thinking about it all night of a single action you've ever done in your life that you didn't want to do. You can say, wait, I don't have to go to bed and think about that. I'm at this conference, and it's the last place I ever wanted to go. I said, well, why are you here if you didn't want to come? You don't know. My wife, if I didn't come to this conference, she was going to make my life hell on earth. And I had no desire to come to this conference. And I said, yes. But at the time of the decision, your strongest inclination was to acquiesce to the wishes of your wife rather than to live in the misery that you would have if you didn't. It's like Jack Benny. You remember the old skit when he would be in front of us giving his mind dialogue and a guy coming from the side of the stage with a mask and a gun and he would point the gun at uh, Jack Benny and say, your money or your life? And Benny would go. And the burger said, come on, what are you doing? He says, I'm thinking about it. See, even in that, what the burglar does is he doesn't force you to give him his money. He's just reduced your options to two. And he leaves you to make the decision whether you want to give him his money or whether you want to die. You will choose according to the strongest inclination that you have at the moment. That's the way human choice operates. And God knows that. And God has the wisdom and the power to work through our desires 
to bring about his plan. Even if and when our desires are altogether evil, God can and does work through our evil desires to bring about his good purposes. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Just remember who is sovereign and who isn't, and this will never be a problem for you. Let's pray. Father, we are so glad that it is you who is sovereign. We thank you for the degree of freedom you have given to us, and we thank you for the liberty that is ours in Christ. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, you've empowered us now to choose Jesus, to want Jesus, to desire that which was once completely undesirable, to us. When once we didn't want you in our thinking, you have given now to our soul a desire to know you and to love you. Thank you for the exodus of our souls from the bondage of sin. Amen. Are you one of those that gets angry when you hear there's only one way to God? question is, why should there be one? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This surely is the most famous verse in the New Testament. It's the one that people color their hair all different kinds of shades and hold up in signs at sporting events, John 3.16. Probably the most distorted verse in all of the New Testament as well. Because people who love the universality of this verse hate the particularity of this verse. And let me show that to you. It begins by saying something about the love of God and the object of God's affection. God so loved what? The world. Now let me finish this for you according to contemporary understandings of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave Christ and saves everybody in the world. People draw from this text a doctrine of universal salvation, that God loves the world so much he saves everybody. But obviously that's not what the text says. And those who are particularists and Arminian say that God loved the world enough to provide a way of salvation for everybody in it. Let's get rid of this election business and predestination doctrine. John 3 doesn't say that either. What John 3 says is that God's love is so deep and so profound, he loved the world enough to send his only begotten son. Now, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. He did not love the world enough to send five saviors, Jesus, Buddha, Mohammed, Confucius, so that if God were really loving, 
he would provide avatars galore, that he would provide a smorgasbord of salvation where everybody can believe their own religion, and it's okay because God loves the whole world enough that he's not so narrow-minded, not so exclusive that he requires faith in Christ. Because doesn't the Bible say that God loves the world? Yes, the Bible says he loves the world. And he loves the world how much? Enough to send his monogenes. Enough to send his one and only son. I warn people that at the end of their life, if they stand before God, they better not say, God, why were you not loving enough to provide 15 saviors? Consider this scenario. Suppose that there actually is a God in heaven. And suppose this God in heaven created the whole world and everybody in it. And suppose among the birds and the fish and the animals, he gave the most exalted position in all of creation to this one to whom he gives his image called human beings. And he says to them, you will be holy even as I am holy. And suppose 15 minutes after he makes them, they revolt against him. After he says, if you do this, you will die. And they do that. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to provide a way to escape that judgment. And he speaks to Abraham out of paganism, brings him to himself. Says, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. Suppose he does that. And then he blesses all of the descendants of Abraham and then expands to a whole nation and said, through this nation, I'm going to bless the whole world. But this nation repeatedly turns against God. And so God sends prophets to these people and tells them to come back to him, to come back to him as, a, as an unfaithful spouse returns to their partner. And they kill the prophet. And finally, this God says, I'll tell you what, I love you so much that even though you are stiff-necked people, I'm going to send my eternal, only begotten son into this planet, and I'm going to subject him to you. And he sends his son, and the people rise up against his son and crucify him. And yet God loves them enough in all of this that while they're in the act of killing them, God takes the sins of his people and transfers them to his own son. And says, look, if you'll put your trust in him, if you'll confess your sins and you believe in him, if you turn your gaze upon Jesus and you do that, here's what. No death, no punishment, I'm going to give you eternal life with no pain, no tears, no evil, no darkness. Now, suppose he did that. Would you have the guts to come up to God and say, God, you haven't done enough for this world that hates you? Are you one of those that gets angry when you hear there's only one way to God? The question is, why should there be one? Not why is there only one. It's why is there one at all? Well, God loves the world enough to send the only one. 
but think about the depths of the love that God has displayed by giving us Christ, whose name is not worthy to be mentioned in the same breath with that of Mohammed or Buddha or Confucius or anybody else, as God has one son who from all eternity beheld the glory of the Father, came from the bosom of the Father to be lifted up on a cross that anyone who puts their trust in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Thanks for listening to Ultimately with R.C. Sproul. To hear more trusted teachings from Dr. Sproul and other gifted teachers, check out Renewing Your Mind, another podcast from Ligonier Ministries. A new episode is available seven days a week. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. Should we interpret the Bible literally? This is Ken Ham, author of Divided Nation, Cultures in Chaos, and a Conflicted Church. If we interpret Genesis literally, do we need to interpret the whole Bible that way? Actually, we interpret the Bible naturally. This means we read the Bible how it was meant to be read. Scripture is made up of many different types of literature that aren't all meant to be understood the same way. We don't read a newspaper and a love poem the same way. They each have their own rules of interpretation. The Bible's the same way. We read history, like Genesis, straightforwardly. But poetry, like Psalms, clearly uses non-literal figurative language. We need to read the Bible naturally so we can properly interpret its message. Discover more about the Bible when you visit our Bible Upholding website at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com. Good. The Holy Spirit came to give us the power to be witnesses, not to do witnessing. And so we need a generation of Christians that understand it's not about standing on a street corner to do witnessing, but to be witnesses on the earth, to bring salt and light in the midst of our darkness. That's what God has called us to do. All right, so according to Christine Kane, we're not to go preach the gospel. We're to just exist as Christians in the world and not to judge or call out sin. Rather, we just need to bring salt and light. Well, I guess Peter and the rest of the apostles did it wrong when they were filled with the Holy Spirit and went into Jerusalem during a festival preaching the gospel, telling the people to repent of their sins, save themselves from this crooked generation, and to be baptized and follow Jesus. And Paul did it wrong when he went to the Areopagus and told the Greeks not to be ignorant but to repent of their sins because Jesus would soon return to judge the world. Then he went to Corinth and tried to preach to the Jews, but they wouldn't listen to him, so he shook his garments of them and said, Your blood is on your own heads. And Jesus did it wrong when in the same public sermon he preached about being salt and light, he said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my father. They will say, didn't we do mighty works in your name? And I will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or maybe Christine Kane is wrong and we should wage the good warfare, lest by rejecting it we make a shipwreck of our faith. Being witnesses means that we speak the truth and expose lies. Being salt and light means that we hold out the word of God and expose sin. Don't listen to anyone who tells you to just be and not do. They're liars when we understand the facts. Jesus said to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there are some who have taken that command to mean that you're supposed to love yourself. In fact, they'll say you can't love others unless you love yourself. You can't love 
if you don't love yourself. The best way to understand this command is to look at the context by which it is originally given in Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. A few verses later, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God says to his children, just as I have loved you as my own, so you love others as if they were your own, as if they were yourself. The Apostle Paul wrote, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If you think that in order to do that, you first have to love yourself, well, that would be selfish, wouldn't it? If you don't love yourself, it is impossible for you to love anyone else. It's just not possible. You know why? Because you can't give away what you don't have. Uh, well, if you don't have it, then how can you give it to yourself? <laughs> Your worth is not in how you love yourself. It's in Christ, who demonstrated his love on the cross, dying in our place for our sins. If you love God, you will love others, not with the selfish love of you, but the selfless love of Jesus, when we understand the text. Context is key. This is Ken Ham, often a guest on radio and TV on the Bible's authority and reliability. Did you know the Bible says there's no God? Well, the Bible only says this if you ignore the context. The verse actually reads, The fool says in his heart there is no God. You see, many skeptics and even Christians will try to prove a point from the Bible by completely ignoring the context. But context is key to properly interpreting Scripture. There are three kinds of context to look for. First, what comes immediately before and after. Second, what does scripture as a whole say? And third, what was the historical context? Paying close attention to the context will keep us from making scripture say whatever we want it to say. Subscribe to receive three daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
think about your own death? Yes, a million times. Does it scare you? Somewhat. Takes your breath away, doesn't it? Very. Scares the heck out of me when I really do think about it. Have you ever heard the Bible verse, the wages of sin is death? No, I haven't. Louise is saying God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge looks at a criminal who thinks he's a good person, but he's committed multiple murders. And the judge says, I'm going to show you how serious your crime is. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what's due to you. This is what you've earned. And Louise, sin is so serious to a holy God. It's not to us. So serious, he's given you the death sentence. You're on death row. Your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. So here's the big question. Do you think God is justified in giving you the death sentence? Are you that wicked, or do you think you're a good person? It's justified because uh, Jesus did die for our sins. So what does that mean to you? He died setting an example for him, for himself, yeah, for, for everybody else. Yeah, I believe that. His life and the way he suffered on the cross is an example for us to live in humility and stand for that which is right. Correct. That's not what the Bible says. Did you know that? No, I do not. There's something completely different, and I want to share it with you. But before I do, I've got to explain to you what sin is. Like a doctor has got a patient. He wants to give him a cure to cancer, mm -hmm. but the patient thinks he's really well, so he's not going to want a cure, is he, if he thinks he's well? So do you think you're a good person? Yes, I do. Okay, you think you're morally well. I'm going to try and convince you that you're not, that you've got a terminal disease. Okay. Can you be honest with me? Yeah, of course. Have you ever committed adultery? That's the seventh commandment. No. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, whoever looks at a woman and lusts for her has committed adultery already, whether in his heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Yes. Have you used God's name in vain? Yeah. She's using it in place of a cuss word. Very serious, Louise. It's called blasphemy, punishable by death in the Old Testament. Do you still think you're a good person? Yes, I still think I'm a good person. When I do say it, I always say, I'm sorry, God. You know you're doing wrong. Right. You've got a conscience. How many lies have you told in your life? Oh, many. Ever stolen something? Yes, I have. But you're a lying thief, is that right? I don't steal as a habit or, you know. Well, let, me, let me ask you again. How many lies have you told in your life? Um, I have. Many? Yeah. If I said to you, I tell many lies, what am I called? You'd say you're a liar. Correct. But it's very hard to judge ourselves like that. We want to continue to justify ourselves. So I'm a good person. If you open my wallet, Louise, and take $1 out, you're as much a thief as if you took $20 out. Yeah. God's not impressed with the value of that which you steal. Have you ever hated someone? Yes, I have. The Bible says, he who hates his brother is a murderer. So hold on, Louise. I'm going to give you a summation of your court case on Judgment Day. This is for you to judge yourself. You've told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating, murderer at heart, an adulterer at heart, and you're self-righteous, which the Bible says is a sin, by saying you're a good person when you're not. You're just like the rest of us. You've earned your wages. Can you see that? God has justified to put you to death. A multitude of sins. The Bible says this wrath abides on you, and every time you sin, you store up God's wrath. So where will you go if you died today? Seeing everything how it is, that I wouldn't be going to heaven, right? I'll be You'd going go to hell. Yes. That horrifies me. Does it worry you? That really doesn't really go into my mind. Um, well, let me try and push it into your mind, because this is your life we're talking about. Would you sell one of your eyes for a million dollars? No. Both for, for a hundred million? Never. And yet your eyes are merely the windows of your soul. Right. Your life looks out those two windows. If your eyes are that precious, how much more is your soul worth? And you say, I don't mind having my soul damned in hell. Of course you do. You love life, the blueness of the sky, the sound of birds, love and laughter, friends and family. 
All these are a gift from God. Man, I want you to be concerned. Now, here's a big question for you. We've looked at the disease, and now we're going to look to the cure, the answer to death. What did God do for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? He sacrificed himself for, our, for, for humanity, for all of us, right? Yeah. How can that help you 2,000 years later? You're in big trouble. You're under God's wrath, heading for hell. How can the suffering death of Jesus help you? What benefit can it be to you? Oh, it can be of a lot of benefit for myself, my persona, my my wealth, my healthy being as a person, and choosing a, a, the right road for me. How can it help you? Being a better person. It's like saying to a judge, "Judge, I robbed the bank, shot the guard, but I'm going to be a better person from now." And he's going to say, "So you should. You're going to jail." Right. So cleaning up your life can't help you on Judgment Day. You know what you need? What do I need? You need that cross. Let me show you how that cross can help you and can open the door to everlasting life to you. And Louisa, if you can get a grip of this, it's going to change everything for you. Okay. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. Okay. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. Right. That's what happened on the cross. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. Mm-hmm. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you go if someone pays those fines. Right. He said, Louise, a lot of fines here, but you're guilty. You're guilty, but you can leave because someone paid your fine. And it's legal. Well, God can legally take the death sentence off you and let you live forever, all because of what Jesus did on the cross through his death and resurrection. And what you have to do to find everlasting life is repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. It's more than confessing to a priest. You go straight to God and say, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. And you turn from those sins perpetually. And then you, and then you trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. You're going to jump out of a plane 10,000 feet. Why would you put on a parachute? You're going to not die. Yeah, and your motivation is fear. Right. And that fear is your friend, not your enemy, because yeah. it's making you put on a parachute. Yeah. And Louise, because I love you, I've tried to put the fear of God in you today. I've tried to make you sweat a little. Mouth go dry. Up, no, palpitate. Hoping you'll see that fear is your friend, not your enemy. Yeah. Because it'll drive you to God's mercy. It'll make you be serious with God about your sins. And instead of saying, I'm a good person, you know, you'll say, I'm, I'm, I'm a wretch. I need God's mercy. I need his forgiveness. Can you hear what I'm saying? Yes, I completely understand. You're going to think about what we talked about? Well, of course. I always uh, think about it. I have uh, family member that's really into religion. She, religion, she has pushed that on my mom. Is she a Christian? Yeah, she's a Christian or devoted. What's that? She's a devoted Christian to Christ. Yeah. yeah. So... Let's bring this to a head. If you were to die right now, your heart gave out, God forbid, where would you go? Uh, I would go to heaven. Why? Because I haven't. I, I repented my sins from when I was a uh, person before. So. But that won't help you. Yeah. You know why? Why? If you're in court, you've committed very serious crimes, mm-hmm. and you say this to the judge, mm-hmm. Judge, I know I'm guilty. Mm-hmm. I know I'm heading for jail, but I want to tell you I'm really sorry and I won't do it again. The judge is going to say, of course you should be sorry, and of course you shouldn't do it again. You're going to jail. So repentance can't save you from man's court, and it won't save you on judgment day. The only thing that will save you is that cross and your faith in Jesus as your Savior. So don't stop right on the edge. Just throw yourself over and say, God, I need to be born again. I need to get right with you. I'm not going to trust in my repentance. I'm going to trust in your mercy, and the difference is life and death. Can you hear what I'm saying? Definitely, 100%. So when are you going to repent and put your trust in Jesus? As soon as I can. Right now? 
Uh, yes, right now I'll do it. Are you sorry for your sin? Oh, I definitely am. Do you understand that Jesus died for you, rose again on the third day? 1,000%, yes. May I pray with you? Sure. Father, I pray for Luis. I thank you for his openness to hear what I had to say, and I pray he'll think about his secret sins and your wrath upon him and yet your, your richness and mercy that you expressed through the cross and how your love was expressed through that cross and how you destroyed our greatest enemy, death. And today, may he be genuinely sorry, repent of his sins, and trust in Jesus, and pass from death to life, according to your promise. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you have a Bible at home? I do not. Okay. I want to tell you a few, few things. Number one, I'm going to give you a Gospel of John, which is the fourth book of the New Testament. I want to give you a book I've written called Save Yourself Some Pain, which is Principles of Christian Growth. Another book I've written called Scientific Facts in the Bible, I want to tell you, I wasn't going to come to the school today. I come every day, twice a day, but I was busy today. And I thought, man, i got 30 minutes. I'm going to be late getting dinner for my wife. And it's 95 degrees, and I had every reason not to come. But I came, and I believe it's because God wanted me to speak to you, and I'm so pleased you're listening. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. The Bible is God's love letter to you. Praying is us talking to God. The Bible is God speaking to us. So it's swift to hear and slow to speak. Get into God's Word and find out what He wants you to do. He'll direct your path through His Word. Make sense? Makes a lot of sense. I'll, make, I'll read this uh, on my way home right now. Nice to meet you. All right, nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions for the Christian faith, and much more. The Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, available at livingwaters.com. Well, she finally resigned. Oh, hold on. Oh, thank you. Madison's filming 11. No doubt you have heard of the big story of the resignation of one Claudine Gay, the former president of Harvard University, under a cloud of accusations of plagiarism and her inability to denounce people who call for the extermination of an entire people group. Jimmy, you know how tricky that can be. Uh, ooh, how do you articulate that sort of denunciation? Uh, she released a letter to the press, but we did some journalistic smoothing to discover it was actually the Harvard Corporation that presented her letter of resignation to all the media outlets. Well, we're not like those people. We did some journalistic sleuthing, and Jimmy, guess what we discovered? What? What? The resignation letter was not the original document that she herself by hand had written. Guess what I hold in my never-before-nicotine-stained fingers? You have a copy. I actually have a copy of the original, actually written by Claudine Gay letter. Here it is. Let's see what she... Boy, her handwriting isn't, isn't very good. Nevertheless, here's what it says. Before score and seven years ago... Maybe I was born to run. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away, but today what we have is a failure to communicate. This is kind of familiar. I am not a crook, but I do have a dream that one day we should have nothing to fear but fear itself. Now, you may, wow, you may say I'm a dreamer because divided we fall, united we stand, and we stand up next to her and defend her still today while I pledge allegiance to the flag because if it's one by land, it's two by sea. This is like 
Are you going to keep going for you? Yes. This is the time to reflect on every breath you take and every move you make. Some birds aren't meant to be caged. Their father's feathers, her handwriting, just too bright. And because there's no place like home, I've never been a quitter. To leave my office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interest of America first. Therefore, I resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. So beautiful. When you think of me, just know she loves you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hasta la vista, baby. There you have it. No, no other news outlet reporting. And speaking of utterly ridiculous in academia, the folks at the college fix assembled a list. 72 new things that are racist as of 2023. Jimmy, would you like to hear the list of racist things? Because you're on it. Oh, oh I am. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, white people are racist. Uh-oh. All Republicans, all conservatives, all evangelicals. And if you happen to hold dear certain things that we've typically treasured in this country. Dad jokes. Dad jokes. They are racist. Oh. They should be outlawed anyway. Cleanliness not wearing a mask, Shakespeare, Frankenstein, Edgar Allan Poe's work, all of it, To Kill a Mockingbird, I'm not making it up, medical record keeping, the public health departments, hmm, I could maybe buy into that one, BMI, so your body mass index, if, if you point out that somebody maybe isn't fit as a fiddle, that's racist, so too, Jimmy, this one might tag you, What's your pantry looking like at home these days? Uh, well. Is it tidy? Uh, yeah. Organized? It is. Racist. You met my wife. Absolutely racist. Clowns? I notice mines aren't on the list. Willy Wonka is racist. Oh, no. Not liking rap music. Music education programs, occupations. The Apostle Paul, he found himself on here. Conservatives. Abe Lincoln. Of course, we all know that he was hockey, white paint, math engineering, and finally, you've got admissions essay word limits. You say, how in the world did inanimate things become racist? Good question. you got to become familiar with the CRT, the critical race theory business. Two groups of people underneath this Marxist banner called CRT. you got the oppressor, a.k.a. white people, and the oppressed. So if the oppressor invented something, hoisted it onto society. You know, things like math and clean pantries. It is automatically deemed oppressive and therefore racist. What? Oh, oh, if you're wondering about the, uh, the funeral of common sense, I guess the services are Friday at 2 o'clock. Scripture is clear. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truth of God's Word. Many people claim that Scripture is full of hidden meanings. Well, this week we've been looking at how to read the Bible. And one important principle is the plain meaning of Scripture. One of Jesus' favorite replies to questions was, haven't you read? Jesus expected people to read and understand the Scriptures. 
This means scripture isn't full of hidden meanings that only educated or enlightened people can discover. Now, there are parts of the Bible that are more difficult to understand than others, but this doesn't mean we should search for hidden meanings. The Bible teaches its truth plainly so that all generations are able to understand its basic message. Plan your visit to the Creation Museum to discover more about the truth of God's Word and how science confirms the Bible. Visit AnswersRadio.com. The Bible says, do not go beyond what is written or teach any different doctrine or devote yourself to myths and speculations. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Jesus, so he was born through Mary, the virgin, and then he was born again in resurrection. God gave me a Ferrari because I am a Ferrari. You're a Ferrari, too. Do you believe that only Christians can be in relationship with God? No, I believe that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the way I read that, He's the road marker. God began to say to me, I'm going to tell you something right now, Beth. Boy, you rock this one down, and you say it as often as I give you utterance to say it. Every Christian who believes in the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, believes that because of the authority of the Catholic Church. God broke the law for love. Jesus said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The Bible has been written for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we have hope. If you go beyond what is written, you're probably being a heretic when we understand the text. Compare scripture with scripture. This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church with God's word. When we read the Bible, we need to remember that God didn't tell us everything about himself all at once. We don't usually find one chapter that fully deals with a topic. Instead, we have to compare scripture with scripture. That's why it's important not to neglect any part of the Bible. Often Christians will ignore the Old Testament and only focus on the New Testament. But we can't properly understand the New Testament without understanding its foundation in the Old. And we can't properly understand the Old Testament without the New Testament. You need both. When you read and interpret the Bible, make sure you compare Scripture with Scripture. There's so much more to discover about God's Word when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. Find resources for the whole family at AnswersRadio.com. There is indeed a vast difference between love as our society and culture defines it and godly biblical love. For years, there had been certain Bible scriptures about love that were constantly quoted by New Age teachers to support their teachings of love and claim that this is what Jesus was really trying to teach, and only those who were spiritually in tune with this teaching would see and understand it. I think it's really important here as well to define the four different ways the Bible describes love. 
In English, we have one word, love, but in Greek, there are four different words for love. First, there's eros, which is described as like an erotic love. It was more of a passionate definition and referred to sexual love. I would say maybe Song of Solomon in the Old Testament would fit in this category. Uh, another one is philia, which was a love of deep friendship and partnership. Uh, someone once described philia love as possibly the highest love that one is capable of without God's help. I think of the love that Jesus had with his disciples or Ruth and Naomi or David and Jonathan when I think of this type of love. Another word for love was storge. It referred to a family love, the kind of love there is between a parent and a child or between family members in general. And the fourth word for love is agape. This is typically the unique type of love I'm referring to here in this video. It describes a love without changing. It's a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It is love so great that it can be given to the unlovable or unappealing. It's a love that loves even when love is rejected. Agape love gives and loves because it wants to. It does not demand or expect repayment from the love given. It gives because it loves. It does not love in order to receive. It's a whole different realm of love. So what I'm going to do here is to get into some scriptures straight from the Bible and then compare it with how it's defined around us and for us by society. My goal is to express the actual biblical view of this, whether people agree with it or not. I'm, I'm just letting scripture be what it is and simply reading it. I think that this alone will show some of the, the most glaring differences. There's a lot of this in 1 John, and I will have most of my scriptures from there. The word love is mentioned almost 50 times in this very short letter. There is indeed a vast difference between love as our society and culture defines it and godly biblical love. John wrote this letter to Christians to give them direction. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Okay, this is a big concept of what it means to be made complete in God's love. I think this is so cool because in verse 7 and 8 specifically, it says that God is love and that whoever loves has been born of God. So, of course, people who aren't believers can display love. We're image bearers of God. This is a human trait. However, according to the Bible, it's a sort of incomplete love. God's love is made complete through obedience to God. Yes, they love, but it's like a short-changed love in God's eyes. It's 
insufficient. And I think this is a very important thing to mention, that love is only one attribute of who God is. Love is defined by God's character, not the other way around. This is where we see that God is love, not the other way around, that love is God, which is definitely the world's version of this. And, oh, boy, does the world have a different view on this. Because as humans, we sort of see love as its own works-based religion where you have to work for someone's love. And once you have it, it's the roller coaster of conditions to keep that love. So to say love wins or love is love, for example, implies a conditional love that thinks that no boundaries is a good thing. So follow me here on this, okay? It's using positive words, a slogan that looks meaningful to imply that you need to conform to this version of love or you lose. There is no love for your enemy or even most of what Jesus taught himself on the Sermon on the Mount in this perspective. The love of the world is incomplete and changes with the ebb and flow of culture. God's love is unchangeable and perfect. And it's only in his love does the world actually make sense. This is why his love is explained as perfect. And our imperfect attempts to walk in love without him are perfected through him. Verse 10 says that in this is love. Real love, agape love, is not defined by our love for God, but by his love for us. His love for us initiates our relationship of love with him. Our love only responds to his love for us. We can't love God the way we should unless we are receiving and living in his love. This flows into the rest of the passage in verse 16 to 21. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Basically, it's saying as much as we can know the completeness of God's love now, we will know it all the more in the day of judgment. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Okay, so this was actually a very personal verse for me. Uh, Verse 18 was a huge passage quoted to me in the New Age, and I still hear this quoted by non-believers and even well-meaning Christians when they want to tell others that they shouldn't be afraid of something. For example, for myself personally in the New Age, this was a verse used to display the, the different vibrational frequencies someone could be on based on the energy they were putting out. Uh, so, for example, the highest vibration of all of them was love. You couldn't get any higher than that, and it was explained as the most powerful force in the universe. Then you'd work your way down from there into negative energies. 
And the further down you went, the worse it got. You'd have anger, hatred, anxiety. And at the very polar opposite of love, you'd have fear. So this is just some insight on how some people might see this passage. And this is not what John is saying here. John just got done saying love is complete in God's love and talks about the judgment. The type of fear he's speaking of here isn't about fearing God in awe or in his holiness, but in a more literal sense. So he's saying to the believer that we have nothing to fear of God on judgment day because we're in his love. By him showing us this perfect love, then we can love him back. So in the world, we typically have an easy time loving others who agree with us on everything and don't try to tell us what to do, right? This is a superficial love that's based on acceptance, even if it's bad for them or not even true. And as we saw, we know who the children of God are, the ones who obey his commands. What are his commandments? The greatest commandment is to love God and love people. It does not say love your God and only love the people that agree with you. If we take scriptural love, when he says to love people, it's loving them as scripture defines love, as Jesus loved the church, in truth and love, choosing to do what's right, not what's easy. Jesus even says in Luke 6:46 to those who are following him, why do you call me Lord, but don't do what I say? So when people throw in the face of the Christian that we're not following Jesus when we don't align completely with their beliefs, this is just simply false and never something Jesus taught. It was always all about him and obeying Jesus. And a lot of the country and Western Christianity in general thinks we mold God, but the Bible says it's the opposite. God molds us. True, godly, biblical love does not rejoice in wrongdoings, but rejoices with truth. Love is loving the truth. Love is acknowledging there's a truth. Never in my lifetime did I think that I would be seeing my country and world and the condition that it's in when it comes to a lack of acknowledging simple truth. Relativism is no longer just confined to just the New Age concepts. This is everywhere. People can live their truths whether it's actually true or not. This is what the world respects now. And to live in godly, perfected love means living in the truth, whether the world sees it or not. Some claim that these Christian values stand in the way of happiness for many. As my good friend Frank Turek says, people are on a happiness quest, not a truth quest. The world thinks that if it makes them happy, then it must be true. And from this stems a lot of really empty and disorienting definitions of what love is. Ironically, a lot of people hate what Jesus taught and what Christians stand for so much that they're willing to live in these lies out of hatred, not because they're actually true. And this is everywhere in our country right now. And I have to say, I see this on both sides of the spectrum. Let me hand this back to believers for a second. If you're a Christian and have such hatred for people that have opposing views than you do, whether it's religious, political, personal, whatever, even when they speak truth, 
some Christians refuse to believe it out of that hatred. This is not biblical, and we should hold ourselves to a higher standard. Of course, this is to say, I see this on the other side as well. They live in lies because it's convenient and popular. Their definition of love is actually just loyalty to the system. Even if the love that they follow creates a world of lies and untruths, love is now a branding strategy to make you obedient to what society says is normal and loving. Biblical love is anti-cultural and for many stands in the way of what the world would consider progress. Who decides what's true and false anymore depends on who's in power. The value of truth claims depends on who's making them. So all this to say that in real and perfect godly love is truth. Truth and true love is found in the person of Jesus. Beware, false teachers. This is Ken Ham inviting you to encounter God's Word at the Ark Encounter. The New Testament is full of warnings to the church to beware of false teachers and their deceptive teachings. Now these people twist scripture to make it say what they want it to say. Listening to these kinds of people is dangerous because it leads us away from God. So how can we recognize false teaching? Well, just because a particular teaching is popular doesn't make it right. False teaching is usually more popular than the hard truth. The only way to combat false teaching is by knowing the truth. We need to study the Word of God so we can recognize false teaching when we hear it. Our ultimate authority, it must always be God's Word. Plan your trip to the Ark Encounter, where kids visit free by going to AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged with God's Word at AnswersRadio.com. That's all we got for Truth Be Told Radio. That's me, Melissa Cancella. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.